Uh, thanks, Luke. Thanks for your kind words. And good morning, everyone. Um, as Luke said, my name is James, and uh, I'm a student here in Cape Town. And also, I have the privilege of being a part of the Next Gen team and being a volunteer there. Um, I come to you this morning with somewhat of a heavy heart, uh, recognizing where we're at and seeing everyone in their homes um, and being here, but also one with a trusting heart, trusting God that He would speak through His Word. And yeah, that he'd encourage us as we go on into our new weeks. So we're in Mark chapter 10. So if you're on your devices or your Bibles, please turn with me to verse 32. And let's read together. So they were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death. They will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. But Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom... They've been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your word. We are grateful that you are in control, that you are sovereign, that God, on this rock you have built your church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Lord, we come to you and we ask that you would speak to us, that you would soften our hearts, that we would see you, Lord Jesus and that you'd be glorified. Amen. Well, this morning we continue in our two-year-long journey through the Gospel of Mark together. Chapters 1 to 8 pose us the question of, who is Jesus? Who is this man who teaches with authority, who heals the sick, who casts out demons, and who breaks the Sabbath? Who is this man who cares for the lowly and the outcast, who touches the untouchable, and who loves sinners? And this all culminates in Mark chapter 8. In verses 27 to 30, we see that to Jesus' question, who do you say that I am? Peter confesses, you are the Christ. Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, the anointed one of God, the one about whom the prophets spoke, and the one who would usher in God's kingdom. And it's from this high point that the remainder of the gospel unpacks a second question. What has Jesus the Messiah come to do? And it marks this development through a journey south as Jesus moves from the northern parts of Galilee where he was ministering to Jerusalem 
where you'll ultimately suffer, be killed, and then rise again. And so our passage this morning takes place along this journey, as Jesus and his followers make their way up to Jerusalem. And in order to make our way through these verses, I've structured the passage as follows. We see a description in verse 32, a prediction in verses 33 to 34, a reaction in verses 35 to 41, and an application in verses 42 to 45. So turn with me again to Mark chapter 10, verses 32 to 34. So verse 32 begins with Jesus and his followers on their way up to Jerusalem. And as they're making their way along the strenuous journey through the Judean country, we see that Jesus is leading the way with his followers coming behind him. Now, this is the same Jesus who never seemed to be in a hurry, who always stopped and listened, and who always welcomed any and all interruption. But now we see him taking initiative. He's leading his followers to Jerusalem. In Luke's account, in his gospel, he clarifies the scene for us. In chapter 9, verse 51, we read that as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Jesus has his face set towards the city. He's not meandering. He's determined, purposeful, and unwavering, and he's moving with a resolute commitment towards his destiny. And what is that destiny? Well, he's told his disciples once, he's told them twice, and he's about to tell them a third time what's going to take place when they get to Jerusalem. But we see this vivid picture of a man on a mission striding towards his destiny. And what about his disciples? What about the followers in his wake? We read that they were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. And it's presumably Jesus' steadfast commitment here to all that awaits him, his suffering, his death, that causes anxiety, astonishment, and fear. His followers recognized enough to see that Jesus was walking into immediate danger. This was no afternoon slide of all that Jesus has told them. Jesus was moving toward his dreadful destiny. And to this, the disciples were astonished, and those who followed were afraid. And so from this description in verse 32, we move to a prediction in verses 33 to 34. Jesus, taking his disciples aside, reiterates in the most detail yet what is going to happen. Look with me in verse 33. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him, and three days later he will rise. So at their destination, where Jesus is leading the way in Jerusalem, we see that he will be delivered over to the Jewish religious authorities. They will be condemned to die. And since the Jewish authorities did not have the power to execute the death penalty, they would in turn hand him over to the Gentiles, the Romans, who would mock him, spit on him, beat him and kill him. And three days later, he would rise. So what has Jesus, the Messiah, come to do? We see that he's come to be betrayed, come to be falsely accused, unjustly condemned, Mocked, spat on, beaten, whipped, and die on a cross. The ultimate humiliation. Yet it's to this very destiny, to this very end, and for this very purpose, that Jesus is leading the way. He resolutely is committed to all that awaits him. 
the passion of our Savior. Well, what did these words do to his disciples? What was the reaction to what Jesus had said? Was it silence? Was it somber or pensive reflection? Or repentance of their hearts and their lives? Well, look with me in verse 35. We read that James and John come to Jesus. Now, James and John were some of the first disciples that Jesus had called to follow him. They were a part of the established 12. And significantly, they were part of Jesus' inner circle. Together with Peter, if you remember a little while back, they were the only disciples to trek up the mountain, to be at Jesus' transfiguration, to see the curtain pulled back and Jesus revealed in all his glory. They had seen it. They were significant, special. Or so they presumed. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. To Jesus' response, what do you want me to do for you? Let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in glory. Now, James and John rightly recognized that as the Messiah, Jesus would one day be destined for glory. And while they still have Jesus here, they wanted to reserve the best seats in the house. You know, Jesus, while you're still around, would you mind saving the most coveted seats of honor at your right and your left for us, James and John, the sons of thunder? We want you to do for us whatever we ask. The irony is striking. Just a few verses earlier, we see Jesus focused on his suffering, his imminent betrayal and death. But what are his disciples focused on? Status. Jesus has his eyes fixed on rejection and martyrdom, but his disciples have their eyes fixed on position and privilege. It would seem as if they were selective listeners. It's as if Jesus was giving their material in a stereo or through earphones. The upside was coming through the right speaker, while the downside was coming through the left. And somehow or another, they managed to tune out the left or just take it out the ears and only listen to the right. They only heard what they wanted to hear. They only heard what they anticipated will happen. All Jesus' teachings that didn't match their preconceived notions of the Messiah, well, they were just thrown out. Theirs was a Christianity that was with all the good, with all that they deemed good, and none of the bad. Here we see a disciples focused on glory while Jesus is focused on shame. The disciples are interested in honor while Jesus is interested in rejection. The disciples are fundamentally consumed with the possibility of great exaltation and a crown. And Jesus? Well, there's no place for a suffering servant or a cross. I wonder if this is true for us today. Is it all too easy to take the bits of Christianity, the bits of our faith, the bits of Jesus' teaching that we don't like, and we throw it out, leaving only what we do? Are there areas that we ignore in order to make our faith more palatable, our lives more comfortable, and our discipleship less radical? What is it for you? Perhaps it's the notion of a suffering Messiah, one who would be humiliated and powerless and weak, 
Perhaps it's a culturally outdated sexual ethic. Or perhaps it's the radical approach to your finances. That Jesus calls you to live a life of self-sacrifice and service. Church, would this passage today call us back to the Jesus revealed to us through scripture? The one who reveals the very nature of God. Not the Jesus we make in our own image, in our own likeness. And the one who is our our every beck and call. We want you to do whatever we want you to do, Jesus. But would we turn back to the Jesus of the Bible in whose image we are made? Well, James and John don't quite understand what they're asking Jesus to do. In fact, in verse 38, Jesus' question anticipates the answer no. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? Well, the cup here was Jesus' death that he was about to endure, where he would drink the divine wrath of God for humanity's sin. Moreover, Jesus saw his death not only as a bitter cup to drink, but as an immersion, a baptism of sorts into suffering. In effect, Jesus is saying to James and John, if you want to rule with me in my glory the way that you're asking, then you must die with me. You must drink the same cup. If you want the kind of honor you're asking for, you must follow me in my suffering and death. You must be baptized with my baptism. Because my pathway to glory and kingship and status is not through power or human values. It's through suffering and death. But this call of Jesus is not just for James and John alone. They're not Jesus' only followers. Jesus has many more whom he calls all of them to follow his pathway to glory. He calls all of us to suffering and death through the cross. There will be many others, but Jesus only has one right hand and one left. So who will sit there? Well, in verse 40, we see that these places belong to those whom they've been prepared. God the Father has decided it, and it's not to change now. So we see that James and John's clueless petition is fueled by their selfish ambition, and this leads to indignation from the other disciples. Look with me in verse 41. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Now perhaps this is are remotely possible that the reason they were concerned was because they thought that it did a great service to who Jesus was. The two of them asked them and made them think that way. And the ten were so far removed from all that, that they were just indignant. How could you do this, James and John? How could you do this to Jesus? The more likely possibility is that they were bleak with James and John because they had got a head start on the seating arrangements. And when they found out that James and John had applied for the left and the right-hand seats, they too were furious. How could you do this, James and John? How could you do this first? The atmosphere is hostile. Tensions are fuming. And tension is mounting. Here Jesus provides us with an insightful application. He calls all his disciples together in verse 42. And he says to them, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, 
and their high officials exercise authority over them. Here what Jesus is doing is he's contrasting the exercising of authority by Gentile rulers with the ideals of greatness in his kingdom. And to do this, you could maybe just think of the coinage of the land. In Jesus' day, there would be the emperor, maybe Tiberius or Augustus, and their heads would be on their coins, along with the inscription, he who deserves adoration. And every time a person would take out that coin, they would look at it and say, well, this must be the epitome of having made it. If you're the emperor, you deserve adoration. Perhaps we're a bit more subtle today. Perhaps not. What does it look like? Perhaps it looks like that prestigious position or title at work. Or perhaps it looks like that influential social media following. Perhaps it looks like that extraordinary accomplishment which you've been working your whole life to achieve. And the result is that people will look at you and say, this is the epitome of having made it. If you are this, if you do that, if you have this, then you deserve full adoration. But Jesus understood that there was only one deserving adoration. And therefore, those who are going to be his followers needed their human valuation to be turned on its head. Look at the little phrase in verse 43. He says to his disciples, not so with you. Not so with you, Christian. Instead, if you want to be great, serve. If you want to be first, be a slave. In other words, here Jesus is reversing these human values and reorientates them around God's kingdom. And this very reversal is embodied in Jesus himself. Look with me in verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. What did Jesus the Messiah come to do? He came to give his life as a ransom. What is the chief example of greatness in God's kingdom? Well, it's Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the form of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. Even death on a cross. Jesus is our ransom. We see at the cross of our Lord where heaven's love and justice meet. With a ransom for my sin and your sin, the debt we owed was fully paid by him. Now, Jesus wasn't calling his disciples to give their lives as a ransom. That was his unique mission. He is the only savior because he's the only one who is qualified to save. But he does call us to service. He does call us to sacrifice. He does call us to selfish, selflessness and humility of heart. This is a call for radical discipleship. Would you look again at verse 45 and note the significance of Jesus' words? 
the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Here Jesus says that this radical call to discipleship, to service and suffering, is not a call to serve Jesus, but a call to be served by Jesus as we serve others and to be ransomed by his death and be ransomed by him from death. And this is the good news. The good news that the radical call of Christian discipleship is not to serve Jesus, but to be served by Jesus as we serve others and be ransomed by him from death. Jesus does provide the chief example of service. However, this is just not an example for me to follow. He's not just saying serve the way I serve. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Not to be served by whom? Whom does he not want to be served by? Well, the answer is the very disciples that he's calling to drink his cup and to endure his baptism and to be a slave of all. This is the Son of Man serving me and you, ransoming me and you from my sin and death. He's saying, yes, drink my cup, share my baptism, suffer. Yes, serve others. Yes, be a slave of all. This is what it means to be my disciple. But it's not about serving me. I've not come to be served. I won't be served like this. I will be the servant. I've not come to be served, but to serve. And in your relationships with me, I will be your servant. I will serve you. I will work for you. This is what he's saying to me and you this morning. And I think we need to think about if we can drink this cup or be baptized with this baptism to suffer and to serve as Jesus calls us. Do we think we can do it in our own strength? Do we think we can endure the suffering of Jesus' baptism without Jesus serving and helping us? Do we think that we can become the kind of person that renounces fame and human status to serve all other people without Jesus first serving you day and night, all the days of your life? can't. Apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. We cannot drink his cup. We cannot endure his baptism. We cannot suffer persecution. We cannot serve one another, being a slave of all, without Jesus first abiding in us and us in him. We need to trust him that he will serve us in this season. Because it's impossible to drink the cup of suffering, to experience the pain of daily life. It's impossible to become everyone's servant unless, unless the Son of Man is serving you day and night. And that's what Mark 10 verse 45 is all about. Jesus doesn't come merely as another teacher or philosopher or politician or mystic. He comes to do two things. One, to give his life as a ransom for many. And secondly, to, to serve his disciples. To serve all those who will stop trying to earn his approval by serving him and who will humble themselves like little children and let him serve them. This is the help we need. This is the power we need. He is our redeemer from guilt and death 
and hell, but he's also our helper day in and day out as he serves us by the power of his spirit. Church, in this season, which is so confusing, which is so anxious, would we trust and draw strength from this, that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many? Would you trust him today? Let me pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Jesus, you are rich in mercy and grace. Father, we are grateful and thankful that you are on the throne. We're thankful that you are the ransom that has set us free from our sin and death. And Lord, that you serve us. Lord Jesus, would you be with us as we go into this week? Would you draw near to my brothers and sisters? And would you have your way to your glory, we pray. Amen.